You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the previous lectures, we have focused on the teaching of the Church Fathers, their thought with regard to the Trinitarian beliefs of our Catholic faith, the saving work of Christ, theological anthropology, the Father's teaching on the sacraments on the Church. And we concluded by bringing all of these themes together in the wonderful work of St. Augustine, the Magister. One of the hopes that I would have for this series of lectures and for the course that many of you are partaking in is that you not only grow in familiarity with the teachings of the Church Fathers, but as I mentioned in the introductory lecture, to become conscious or more conscious of who these Church Fathers are within the rich doctrine of the communion of saints. As previously mentioned, while they have their place in heaven, they continue to be active within the dynamic of the communion of saints within the becoming of the Church. I often encourage my students to choose one or two of the Church Fathers that strike them in a particularly impressive way and develop a relationship through prayer, through reflection. One of the questions I sometimes ask my students is, when you get to heaven, God willing, we all get to heaven, and we are sitting at the banquet table of the Lord, which of the Church Fathers might you choose to sit next to? Some of you may recall that the Steve Allen program on television some years back where persons from different eras, different cultural backgrounds are brought together to discuss their similarities, their differences, their reflections. And so to develop a living relationship with these structural persons of our Catholic faith and our Catholic belief is a unique opportunity. Now, one of the critical ways, of course, of coming into relationship with the Church Fathers is to get to know them as well as possible through their writings. And I would like to take just a few moments to indicate the primary sources that are available to us, particularly in English, so that you might read the Church Fathers yourselves. We have spent a good amount of time speaking about the thought of the Church Fathers, but this kind of secondary source approach is helpful, but it seems to me that much more life-giving is to actually immerse ourselves to drink in the words of the Fathers themselves. Ideally, all of us would be proficient in Greek and Latin, but since that's not the case, we take advantage of the many fine English translations that are available to us. And before 
listing a few of these works, I would like to pay special tribute to a giant, in my view, of the 19th century by the name of Father Ming, M-I-G-N-E, who died in 1875. If you get a chance to visit a major library resource that has his collection of the Greek and Latin authors, it's truly an amazing life work. Father Ming compiled the greatest and most important collection of ancient writers, which is called in Latin, Patrologiae Cursus Completus. And then there are the Latin fathers and the Greek fathers. What's so amazing about the work of this man is that he has collected almost all of the extant known texts from both the Greek and Latin world. And his Latin Patrology contains 217 volumes, and these are thick volumes. I encourage my students sometime to go, and since they are in Latin, most can't read them, but even to handle them, that he put together 217 volumes, which go all the way back to the first extant Latin writings and conclude with Pope Innocent III, who died in 1216. And he has, likewise, a complementary set of Greek texts as well. And it's just an enormous life work. During this preceding baseball season, there has been much comment about Mark McGuire's 70 home runs and Cal Ripken's playing in so many consecutive games. Well, analogically, St. Augustine liked to teach about the Trinity using analogies. Analogically, the prodigious amount of work that was done by this French priest is as outstanding or more outstanding analogically in the world of scholarship. So all of us who are interested in recapturing and staying in touch with the living tradition of the Greek and Latin fathers owe a debt of extreme gratitude to Father Ming. With regard to the availability of the Church Fathers in English, there are a number of series that are available in most every university library. In 1979, Erdsman's Publications in Grand Rapids, Michigan published the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, both the first and second series, each series having 14 volumes. And in 1947, the Catholic University Press in Washington, D.C. published the Fathers of the Church series, which in 95 volumes gives a full representation of the writings of the Church Fathers. And in 1946, were published again by the Catholic University Press, the series of ancient Christian writers in 56 volumes. In addition, the liturgical press in 1970 published a three-volume set by Father William Jurgens entitled The Faith of the Early Fathers. 
Now, my students have often found this very helpful. Sometimes it can be quite frustrating because what Father Jurgens has done is brought together snippets of the writings of the Church Fathers, and there's lots of little dots in between. But to get a first taste of the writings of the Fathers, this series, The Fathers of the Church, in three volumes, is a wonderful help because it brings together in three small volumes the highlights of each Church Father. So you can get an introductory sense, an introductory flavor, and then at the same time with the series of the Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers or the ancient Christian writers or the Fathers of the Church, you can go and read the complete works of a particular Father who may interest you. With regard to secondary sources, by far I think the most helpful source is the four-volume set Protrology that has been brought together by Ioannes Quastin. And Quastin's work is a masterpiece and a classic. And it is the primary reference for secondary information about the Church Fathers. He gives an extensive summary of the life of each of the Church Fathers. He then lists all of their extant writings and gives a short synopsis of what is found in each of the writings. And then the third section under each church father, he treats the church father thematically. So much of the material that we have gone through with regard to different church fathers teaching on the theology of the Trinity or Christ's saving work would be listed there thematically as well. So, Quaston is always a good jumping off point, but again, I encourage you as much as possible to immerse yourself in the actual writings of the Church Fathers. It's so much more helpful to read what they actually wrote than to read what someone else is commenting on of their writings. So, primary sources are always preferable, but as a supplementary and an auxiliary help, this four-volume work, Patrology, by Quaston is of great value. So, the Fathers of the Church, their writings are available to us in English if we are unable to read the Latin or Greek originals. Finally, I would like to, in this lecture, bring together some of the developments that perhaps we haven't yet touched upon in the development of these other doctrines. The Church Fathers, of course, lived in a time of great change and great development in the history of the early Church. We know, for example, that the Apostolic Fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, St. Polycarp, Justin as well as Irenaeus, and the fathers of the third century, both in the Latin West and the Greek East, lived in the time of the church martyrs. The year 315 was a watershed year in the history of the church. Before 315, while the persecutions of the church were sometimes sporadic and not universal throughout the Greek East and the Roman West. Nevertheless, to become a Christian meant 
to be vulnerable to martyrdom, to arrest, to losing one's job, one's position. And so, as might be expected, the early Christian churches remained rather small, that they were not large dioceses or archdioceses as we would know of them today. And so, for example, St. Ignatius, writing to the various churches in his letters, would encourage them to gather for the Sunday liturgy at the same time. He often speaks of one altar, one church, one priest, where the bishop and the presbyters would concelebrate at the one community liturgy. And so the churches, whether it be of Philadelphia, Thessalonica, of Corinth, wherever they might be, might be more the size of a small parish today rather than what we would think of as a diocese or certainly of a larger archdiocese. And this was the case up until the year 315 or so. Once the age of the martyrs was ended and as the fourth century progressed, not only was it safer to be a Christian, but it came to be that there were certain advantages. By the end of the fourth century, the Christian religion had been placed on a scale equal to the other state religions of Rome. Some of the emperors were Christians themselves, although some of them Aryan Christians. And so we see a rapidly expanding population of membership in the 300s. And one of the questions, of course, that arose was, since the Christians during the age of the persecutions, really by the very fact of being a Christian, had to be very committed, had to be very willing at least to be exposed to the possibility of arrest, persecution, or even death by martyrdom, how would the Christians after the age of persecution continue to live that same intensity? And of course, as the numbers grew, it's not every Christian who wanted to live a focused, intense, completely committed life to being a follower of Christ, but some did. And one aspect of the church in the age of the fathers was the development and the growth of the monastic church. It's, I think, impossible to describe the tremendous blessings, the strength of the monastic movement, both in the East and in the West, in the 300s and the 400s, and then continuing right up to our present time. Because those men and women who sought to follow Christ radically and whose option of martyrdom had been cut off by the very fact of the peace of the church had to come up with a new strategy. We recall again St. Ignatius of Antioch how much he wanted to be a martyr and how concerned he was that the church at Rome would somehow pull some political strings to get him released. And it was easy in that sense, not easy to be a martyr, but he didn't have to look for 
creative ways of imitating in his own flesh the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. For someone living in the mid-300s, the mid-4th century, that path was denied him or her. And what emerged then as a substitute kind of martyrdom, not a martyrdom in body, but a martyrdom in spirit, as it were, was the desire for the eremitical or the life of a hermit or the life what evolved to be, as we know it, the life of a monk or of a nun. And one of the great phenomena of the early 4th century was the number of people who fled to the deserts, particularly in the east, the deserts of Egypt, the deserts of Syria, and there chose to live a very basic, primitive, a very ascetical and dedicated and focused life based on the teaching of the gospel and a radical discipleship of Jesus Christ. And St. Athanasius happened to be the right person at the right time in the right place. It's one of those instances of O Happy Fall. Because of his defense of orthodoxy against the Arian threat, we saw how he was exiled seven times. And on many of his exile journeys, he would go to the deserts of Egypt. And he began to become very edified by what he found, by the sincerity, by the holiness of the hermits that he found living there. And he befriended one of the greatest of all of the desert fathers, St. Anthony of the desert. And in capturing the spirit of his life in the biography that he wrote of him, St. Athanasius's work then became the medium through which others who already had some conscious or unconscious desire to be so radically a follower of Jesus Christ responded by the droves. And so the seeds were sown for what has become the monastic life. And the tremendous energy that was released. After the initial experiences and with so many living in the desert, like so many other movements that come into being, there came quickly a point when it was realized that some organizational structure would have to be brought to bear in order to give form and shape and keep the practices of the Desert Fathers within the spirit and the mind of the church. St. Basil the Great, one of the Cappadocian fathers who lived in the fourth century, is often referred to as the father of Eastern monasticism. He was very much of a contemplative by nature. He himself longed to live the tranquil and prayerful life of a monk, and yet because of the needs of the church, like St. Augustine, like so many others, he was called into the active apostolate. And indeed, only for a very short time did he have the privilege of living his beloved monastic life. But St. Basil 
spent much time with monks and he invited monks to assist him in the apostolic work of his churches. And he would instruct them. They would ask him questions. And fortunately for the church, scribes were present who recorded his answers. And so we have had handed down to us both the short rule and the longer rules of St. Basil. And these are the primary guidelines for monastic life in the East. It's not a monastic rule, as we will see developing in the West, but rather injunctions, encouragements, exhortations towards specific prayers, specific actions, a specific way of life not in the systematic, orderly way of the rule of St. Benedict, but rather in response to real, organic questions that were being asked by the monks of his own time. And the rules, both the longer rule and the shorter rule of St. Basil, continue to have a great impact on the monastic life of the Eastern Church. One of the side benefits, in addition to the holiness of life, to the graces bestowed upon the church through the prayers of the monastics. Also in the East, in the Byzantine liturgy, there's a great monastic influence on the development of the Eastern divine liturgy. As you may know and as you will see as you get more deeply into the life and the thought and the teachings of the Fathers, quite different liturgical traditions arose in the different churches of both East and West. And there's quite marked differences between how Christians celebrate the Holy Eucharist in the East and in the West. And in the East, over the centuries, as Constantinople became the dominant, the Rome of the East, its liturgical influence then was felt in the other Eastern churches, as was the influence of the Roman liturgy felt in the other churches of the West. And in the Orthodox divine liturgy, which has grown out of the practice of Constantinople, the monastic influence is great. Monastics by nature are professional prayers. We in the Western Rite often marvel at the length of the Eastern Divine Liturgy. And prayer after prayer after prayer, and it reflects partly the fact that the monks who have been such an integral and such an invaluable part of the growth of the Church in the East have placed their stamp as professional prayers on the Eastern Divine Liturgy. And there was a wonderful union between the monastic dimension of the liturgy with the court ceremonial of the liturgy. Because the other strong influence, of course, in Constantinople was the seat of the Roman Emperor. And, of course, all of the court ceremonial was what people were accustomed to. And so the splendor, then, that's associated with the Eastern Divine Liturgy. And so we see a beautifully incorporated, complementary prayerfulness and splendor of the Eastern Divine Liturgy that is very foreign to our Western eyes, but 
with proper instruction and introduction is an extremely beautiful and edifying prayer of praise and worship to the Father. So whether it be in the liturgy, in the canons, in the discipline of life, the monks in the Eastern Church have had and continue to have a tremendously positive and powerful impact on the life of the Eastern Church. Perhaps even more so than in the West. The number of monks that have blessed and graced the Eastern Churches has been tremendous and remains tremendous even until this day. The Eastern monks have tended to maintain the more individual way of life that Anthony and the other Desert Fathers lived. Basil encouraged always monks to live in community because he wondered if men who live alone, as he said, whose feet will they wash? If we are to follow the example of Christ in washing one another's feet, if we live by ourselves, his fear was that the very goodness of monasticism and the very goodness of the drive to live that way of life may in some cases inhibit the growth of Christian charity, which is the center of our life, of course. And so Basil's hope was that the monks would live in community, would take on some aspect of apostolic work, but in fact the more eremitical tradition, the life of a hermit, has continued to maintain prominence in the East. In the Western Church, of course, monasticism has also been a very important part of who the church has come to be. The great monastic founder in the West, who we could certainly add to our list of church fathers, is of course the great Saint Benedict. Saint Benedict was born in the year 480 and died in the year 547. The genius of Saint Benedict to complement his great prayerfulness, his great holiness, his great intellectual abilities, was his organizational strength. And his rule, which in the West we refer to as the rule. When you speak of the rule, everyone knows that you don't ask what rule. You know it's the rule of Saint Benedict. And it continues to guide Benedictine monks and nuns throughout the Western Church today. Saint Benedict put an extremely specific order into the whole horarium or into the whole daily schedule. He specified seven times during the day and night when the monks would gather in chapel to pray the psalms. He specified the division of the day into three parts, prayer, work, and study. And his genius then has handed down to us a way of life that has borne fruit and continues to bear fruit and will bear fruit well into the next millennium and beyond. And so St. Benedict as well provided an avenue for Christians in the West who wanted to follow Christ more perfectly as did so many in the East. And so the peace of the church ushered in a whole new way of life. One way of life that on one level was so appetable and so desired by so many. The way of martyrdom, the way of persecution, was replaced by an alternate radical way of following Christ, the way of monasticism. 
So certainly the year 315, the peace of the church, Constantine being named emperor was a watershed point for the growth in the church and really ushered in the golden age when so many of the developments that we have spoken about have taken place. I have mentioned quite a few times St. Ignatius of Antioch. In our remaining time, I thought it might be, at least for me, inspiring to share with you a few of my favorite church fathers. One of the things I ask my students to do towards the end of our course on the church fathers is to write a little synopsis of which church fathers from the apostolic age or the age of the apologists or the golden age has spoken to them personally or made a difference in their spiritual or intellectual growth. A few weeks ago, I came across an article that was written, or an address really, that was given by Father Walter Burghardt, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit Fathers, who is a senior fellow at the Woodstock Theological Center, and he gave this talk on the occasion of his turning the age of 80. And it afforded him an opportunity to reflect back on those persons who had been most formative in his own growth into maturity and into holiness and into his priesthood. And he talks about how, of course, St. Ignatius of Loyola was so important to him being a Jesuit and the spirituality of St. Ignatius. But then he talks about how as a young student in his theological studies he was introduced to the Church Fathers and how that has radically marked his academic and priestly ministry ever since. And he talks about the powerful encounter with the Church Fathers but particularly with St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I think his words are so inspirational that I would like to share them with you. And he says this, on the occasion of his encountering the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, he notes that the letters were shaped about the year 110 by the third bishop of Antioch, as he was hustled in chains from Syria to Rome to be clawed by the wild beasts in the Colosseum. The letters have been termed the most beautiful pearls of ancient Christian literature. The most beautiful pearls of ancient Christian literature. What gripped Ignatius was a passionate love for his crucified Lord. A love so overpowering that it breaks through grammar, language is inadequate, ideas tumble headlong upon one another. I was captured especially by his plea to the Christians of Rome. He longs to see them, but he is afraid, afraid of their love. Their influence with civil authority may save him. And this he does not want. And so he begs them, quote, Do not show me unseasonable kindness. Suffer me 
to be the food of wild beasts, which are the means of my making my way to God. God's wheat I am, and by the teeth of wild beasts I am to be ground that I may prove Christ's pure bread. Then only shall I be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, when the world will not even see my body. Once I have suffered, I shall become a freed man of Jesus Christ, and united with him, I shall rise a free man. Just now I learn, being in chains, to desire nothing. And how St. Ignatius echoes the words of St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians, life for me is Christ. I know that it's better to be with Christ than to continue life in this body. And then St. Paul talks about, yet I want to serve you as well. So I want both. And so we can see that same kind of passion and desire to be one with Christ, to be identified in body with the crucified Christ through the words of St. Ignatius. So he has inspired then this great priest, Father Burkhardt, and I'm sure has inspired countless others in their journey of faith into the church and through the church towards the Most Holy Trinity. So certainly St. Ignatius of Antioch is one who is kind of a perennial favorite for persons who fall in love with the church fathers. There's one or two others that are kind of favorites of mine that I would like to mention. We, of course, don't have the luxury of the time of going through each one of these pillars of Christian thought and Christian faith. One whose name here is quite a remarkable and interesting person is Origen. And notice he's one of the early Greek fathers. He lived in the third century, so this was still the time of the martyrs. In fact, Origen's father was a martyr. And as a young lad, it is said that when his father was arrested, Origen wanted to join his father and to become a martyr together with his father. Now, it is said, and as the Italians say, if it didn't happen exactly this way, it's a shame. But it's said that he was only saved from martyrdom by the intervention of his mother who hid his trousers. And when the soldiers came to arrest his father, embarrassment overcame the desire for martyrdom. And in fact, he stayed hidden because he didn't have trousers to put on and then went on to a grand and illustrious ministry as a priest and as a writer. Origen, however, turned out to be a controversial figure somewhat in his own life, but much more after he died. He ran into canonical and ecclesiastical difficulties in his life because being from Alexandria, he should have received permission from his own ordinary to be ordained as a deacon and then as a priest. But in fact, there were some difficulties in relationship with his own bishop, and his bishop refused to ordain him to the diaconate and to the priesthood. And so he then was ordained by a bishop in a diocese in the Holy Land. Well, 
When word got back to his own ordinary, his ordinary was not pleased, and in fact, Origen had to leave his beloved Alexandria. And he had developed, remember, Clement was the one who really formed what we might call the first focused Christian school of theology. Clement was a philosopher, a man of great learning. He was the one who developed a proper and orthodox understanding of a Christian gnosis, in opposition, of course, to all of the heretical ideas of gnosis as part of the Gnostic heresies. So Clement started this theological or catechetical school in Alexandria, and Origen developed it into its maturity, and it became an outstanding institution of Christian learning. When he was banished from the diocese, then he had to start over. And so again, he started a new school in Palestine. But what's so incredible about Origen, I think, is like Father Ming in the 19th century, the prodigious amount of works that Origen produced. Just like to note in this work, Handbook of Petrology by Patrick Hamill, when he writes about origin and the number of works that he in fact wrote. He says this, Origen was the most extensive writer of all the early fathers, about 2,000 titles being listed by Eusebius. Eusebius was a church historian of the patristic age. And Eusebius lists 2,000 works by this man origin. We live in a time of computers and word processors and Xerox machines and technology to assist us, but could any one of us fathom writing 2,000 works and especially to sit down and write them by hand on the parchment of the day? I mean, the incredible capacity for work, for intellectualization of this man. And remember the passion that was indicated by his early desire for martyrdom. And whether it happened in exactly that way or not, the point being that it's based on the passion, the energy, the drive of this man Origen. And Dr. Hamill goes on to say that St. Jerome, some years later, notes about 800 works by Origen. Now here's the unfortunate part that we possess only a small remnant of his work and only one half of what remains in Greek, the remainder is in Latin versions, that is translations that were done by Jerome or others. Now, what happened? How did we go from 2,000 to 800? How did we lose 1,200 works? And then today, having not even the 800, but only a small remnant of the 800. Well, Origen was condemned as a heretic, believe it or not, three times. But three times not in his lifetime, but after he had died. And there was a controversy that ensued on his writings and that kept flaring up every once in a while and each time then some 
were determined to paint Origen and his writings in a suspicious light. And every time that happened, then of course, there was less interest in the scribes recopying his works. And it was, I think, one of the great tragedies of loss for our Christian tradition. St. Jerome, the great biblical exegete of the late 4th and early 5th century, praises Origen for his exegetical work. And just as we've mentioned that St. Augustine stood on the shoulders of St. Ambrose and St. Hilary and St. Athanasius and many of the other fathers, the Western fathers, but also the Greek fathers. Likewise, St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar, stands on the shoulders of Origen and indeed a tremendous gift to the church. Origen is not considered a saint. You remember that one of the four criteria for the approbation of the title Father is orthodoxy of doctrine. Over the centuries, Origen has been maligned. There's a great movement afoot during this 20th century to revisit the question with the advantages of the modern scholarly methodologies that we have. What we're beginning now to see is that what was condemned as originism may not have been part of what Origen actually taught. Or if there were hints or signs of veering off the true path of orthodoxy, it was in such a way as not to merit the severe condemnation that he received after his death. Most of the church fathers at some point or other veered off in some way. We've talked about the difference of opinions with regard to the mortality or immortality of the soul, for example. I sometimes use the analogy of Henry Ford that to criticize Origen or to criticize any one of the church fathers for not getting everything exactly right all of the time would be the equivalent of criticizing Henry Ford because the Model A or the Model T doesn't have cruise control. Remember, these men were trailblazers, they were founders, they were explorers. And while absolutely committed to the foundational doctrines of the church, our belief in the Trinity, our belief in Christ and in his redemptive act, nevertheless, there was much of the deposit of faith that was still being developed during these centuries. So one of my campaigns is to encourage the restoration of the good name of Origen. And it's my conviction, and none of us knows except God himself, who might join Christ and the angels and saints at the heavenly banquet table, but I'm quite convinced that Origen continues to guide the church on earth from his place in heaven. So he's kind of one of my favorites. The other I would just like to comment on very briefly as we approach the end of this series of lectures is that of St. Jerome. I haven't mentioned him quite as much as he deserves. We have noted his great contribution to biblical scholarship, but he was much more. Sacred scripture is the soul of theology, but in addition to being a scripture scholar and a lover of the word of God par excellence, his personality. One author states that St. Jerome is canonized not because of his personality, but in spite of it.
He was very much of a person who loved a good fight. There wasn't one controversy, whether it be the Pelagian controversy, whether it be the Arian controversy, whether it be the controversy over origin that occurred during his lengthy some 80 years that he wasn't involved in. He just seemed to be the type of person that without even being asked or invited, he had his opinion about everything. If they would have had these Sunday morning political talk shows, a kind of Sunday morning theological gatherings in his era, he would have been on all of them most every Sunday morning. Even his association with St. Augustine, when he first encountered the young St. Augustine, he was very suspicious. So he wanted to take on St. Augustine. He wasn't sure that Augustine was clear in his doctrine of grace. And of course, once he realized with whom he was dealing, then they became great allies and they worked together. So he certainly is one that is a very appealing personality. If we want to really come into relationship with the flesh and blood of these men as very real human persons, St. Jerome would be a good place to start. The humanity of the Church Fathers exudes from him. So many others we could speak about, but I hope that through this brief exposure, both to the individual Church Fathers and then also to kind of a more comprehensive run through the major themes of their teaching, my hope and prayer for you is that it would inspire you to go further. Yourself read, pray, and meditate over these sources. Again, there's innumerable secondary sources. There's much aid available to you to put in the historical context to better understand their writings, but there's no substitute for the real thing. So may you drink deeply, delve into, and may you be richly blessed, as I'm sure you will, as many Christians over the centuries have been before us. And of course, the whole point of reading and reflecting upon the works of these great men is that our own faith can be strengthened, our own love of Christ enriched, and our own dedication to the church intensified. Thank you for your attention, and I pray that your journey into the writings, the work, and the lives of the fathers will be most fruitful. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.